Trail and Ultra Runners, what is going on? What's happening? Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. As always, I'm your humble host, Coach Jason Coop, and this episode of the podcast is about a topic that is going to be familiar with most trail and ultra runners and runners at large, and that is because it is one of the hottest nutrition topics in the world today, and that is relative energy deficiency in sport, otherwise known by its two acronyms, REDS or RED-S, depending upon where and whom you hear that acronym enunciated. This is a topic that is relatively new, and as the discrepancy in the acronym might actually imply, we're still trying to wrap our heads around the term as athletes and as coaches. REDS is an evolution of what was previously known as the female athlete triad. And while the change in naming convention might seem trite to some, make no mistake that the name change is important to better educate and understand things within this topic. So to unpack this all and why REDS is so problematic and in particularly problematic for ultra runners who have a high energy demand in the first place due to their training, on the podcast today, we have Ida Hekra, who originally hails from Finland, was schooled underneath the esteemed Louise Burke in Australia, and now finds herself working for the Reds Working Group for Canadian High Performance Sport, where they have this extremely compelling project that is currently underway, where they're trying to educate athletes, coaches, and support staff, including parents, on Reds, as well as gather information from the athletes themselves to determine best practices. Of particular note during this podcast, one of the things I wanted to explore was this confluence between relative energy deficiency, low energy availability, which I've done a podcast on that previously, and I'll link that up in the show notes, and low carbohydrate availability, and figure out which one of these could potentially be a trigger for any of the negative outcomes associated with relative energy deficiency. So with that as a bit of a backdrop, I'm going to get right out of the way. Here's my conversation all about REDS with Ida Hekera. I'm, I'm glad you could actually uh, fi- finally come on the podcast. I remember when I originally reached out to you, it was kind of underneath a different context. And I think you're actually working with um, uh, with Louise Burke's group. Is that correct? Um, I was. I was with Louise from 2016 or 2015 almost um, until 2020. So I, I was there, but then... And I spent six months in Finland after that before coming to Canada. But I've been in Canada for 18 months now. So, uh, but yeah, definitely a long time with Louise. <laughs> so I think it just goes to speak. Sometimes I reach out to these guests and it takes for forever to schedule everything. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad we could I'm glad we could bring you back on. I, I think to start out with um, something for the listeners to kind of get to know you a little bit better is how you initially started out with uh, the Australian Institute for Sport and then relocated to Canada and what your what like what you what you were involved with during that transition. Um, yes, I guess um, I'm originally from Finland and I did my master's in exercise physiology um, in at the University of Uvascular um, in Finland, and then I went to Australia to do a PhD with Louise. 
Professor Lois Berg and also John Holly and Dr. Trent Stellingworth, um, who I work with now. Um, he was assistant supervisor for the PhD. Uh, but I went to Australia in 2016. Uh, I stayed almost four years in my PhD there. Um, it was an amazing experience. Um, I got to do a, a, be a part of a lot of um, the research going on um, at the Australian Institute of Sport, and it's um, it's amazing opportunity really with the facilities you have um, over there. So all the supernova studies are from. From, uh, from the AIS, um, and currently Louise uh, is with ACU's Australian Catholic University, but they continue um, similar research. And I left the AIS, um, or uh, ACU's Australia, early 2020. Um, I had plans to come to Canada. We had applications and everything underway with, with COVID and all that stuff. I spent six months in Finland, um, working kind of as a combined research uh, practice role um, with three different institutions. So there was University of Ubascula, there was uh, the Helsinki Metropolitan Sports Academy, and then the Research Institute for Olympic Sports. So that was six-month kind of transition period, which was a cool change from the being a PhD student uh, to doing something different. And then 18 months ago, I, I arrived in Canada and now I work as a postdoc fellow with Dr. Trent Stellingworth and his team. That's a re- that's a really good pedigree. And I think it's it, it kind of goes without saying, but the listeners should kind of understand that, that that is a lot of uh, high-level expertise that you've had the opportunity to uh, to work with. And... That type of ex- that type of expertise to continually be under like all of those different mentors for the period of time that that you've been working with them, it's kind of irreplaceable. I mean, you get so much experience working with those experienced people that it's uh it it, it like I said, it's just a really it's a really cool background one that I'm the that that I'm sure you are very appreciative of, but it actually shows up in your work a lot as well. Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. And it's definitely. Um... I feel really lucky that I kind of, not by accident, but kind of just, um, I didn't want to go to Australia and then things kind of just, it was a much better experience than I had even thought it could be. So I'm really, really lucky that I was able to to have that opportunity and then, yeah, to come here. Um, it's been awesome. So just, um, I couldn't be happier with those choices, really. I wouldn't change anything going back. So um, definitely feeling really lucky. Yeah, good, have, good, good um, for you. I feel like 10 or 20 years from now, like you're going to be the person that's at the, you're going to be one of the people that are kind of at the top of the pile when we start to talk about things in sports science. So one of the, the topic du jour today is we're going to talk about reds and this has been, I don't know, this has been a really cool topic that's come up recently uh, in sports science and in particular in, in particular endurance sports. Um, and uh, I think that uh, to kick things off, to kick things off, we've got to have a little bit of a history lesson and mm-hmm. how this acronym kind of came about and why, like why the, why, why this current transition from what the what this like set of conditions was known as previously why is it why is the vocabulary important on this 
So since you've been at the forefront, can you kind of take the listeners through this transition first, and then we're going to get into some like practical aspects of it? Definitely. Um, so yeah, it's always good to go back. Um, so as, I guess if you go, we go way back um, around 30, 35 years ago, um, it was discovered that female athletes with um, eating disorders or dis- disordered eating behavior also showed symptoms of amenorrhea, so lack of periods or regular periods. And these um, individuals also often showed poor bone mineral density. So, um, And then research researchers kind of combined this um, syndrome into female athlete triad. So there's the bone, there's the uh, menstrual cycle, and then the eating disorder um, category. And um, they had the first consensus statement um, in the 1990s. It was further developed in 2007 um, when the experts realized that it's actually a continuum from health to disease. So the athlete can have the extreme conditions of eating disorders, amenorrhea and osteoporosis, but they can also have some mild menstrual disturbances or some uh, poor but not clinically osteoporosis, so poor bone mineral density. Uh, they can also have um, disordered eating behaviors, so some kind of uh, orthorexia or um, some issues with dietary intake, but not anorexia um, to speak with. They also realized that low energy availability is the underlying condition behind this syndrome. And what low energy availability means is uh, when we talk about energy availability, it refers to the energy intake um, minus exercise energy expenditure and its factor for fat-free mass. So it's the energy available after exercise training for other body systems to, to be used. And the concept concept is based on Professor Ann Lark's studies from uh, 30 to 20 years ago. And she had a lot of lab-based, um, really uh, clinical and well-designed studies in sedentary females, usually four to five days of duration. And they tested different levels of energy availability from uh, 45 calories per kilo of fat-free mass down all the way to 10 calories per kilo fat-free mass and how those different energy availability levels affect um, several hormones or bone marker concentrations of females. And they showed that when energy availability goes down, those markers also uh, get impaired. So markers of um, hormones, uh, several reproductive or metabolic hormones uh, go down, cortisol goes up, uh, markers of bone formation go down, markers of bone resorption go up. Um, so several uh, detrimental effects appear. And they define the threshold of energy availability in these sedentary females as 30 calories per kilo fat-free mass. But with some markers showing impairments at higher levels and with some markers showing impairments at lower levels. They also did studies uh, with um, comparisons of diet versus exercise-induced longevity availability, but we can go to that uh, later on. But basically, those studies formed the foundation of longevity availability being the underlying um, cause for the symptoms of the female athlete triad. And then... 
I guess um, in 2014, when REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport, it was um, um, formed. It was for several reasons. One of the reasons was to include males in the in the concept as well, because it was realized that male athletes do suffer from the effects of lunge availability. Uh, maybe not to the same extent as female athletes. Females may definitely be more susceptible to the effects of um, lunge availability, but male athletes do definitely also um, suffer from the consequences of lunge availability. Uh, it was also to acknowledge the fact that there is other body systems involved or affected by lunge availability, not just the bone and the reproductive um, system. Um, but the same thing as with the triad, lunge availability was uh, acknowledged as the underlying factor for the development development of REDS. And the REDS, if you look at the, the wheels, the, it still includes the triad as, as a component there, but just wants to emphasize the fact that it's a much uh, broader um, sy- syndrome than just the, the triad. Yeah. And it, what's interesting and pervasive throughout that entire history is that low energy availability seems to be kind of at the linchpin of everything. It almost seems to be like the start point to which all of these different things emanate. And I know that your group in Canada actually has a, actually has a working group that is starting to study relative energy deficiency in sport and try to understand it a little bit better. Can you explain to the listeners like what that working group is like and what things that you, you all are trying to uncover? Um, yeah, yes, I was really fortunate to, to join a group when I came to Canada. It was um, started a year before I arrived here, but uh, there are several goals or aims of the group. One is definitely education and increasing the awareness of reds among athletes, but also the support staff, so coaches, physios, anyone really, uh, parents, because we know that the, some of the outcomes of reds or prolonged lunge availability, such as um, you know impaired bone density, can be really difficult to reverse. Some of them might be even irreversible, so prevention is definitely key. And to prevent something, we need to increase the awareness. So one of the the goals of the group has been to develop an education module on REDS, uh, and that should be almost ready um, to be online in the next month or two, I suppose. But then uh, alongside that, we've got several research projects um, going on around the topic of REDS. And one of the studies is um, the postdoc study that I'm working on uh, with um, leading the study with tr- Dr. Trent Stellingworth. And um, that's that's a pan-Canadian kind of a multi-center research study where, where the main goal is to, to we screen athletes for different symptoms of um, potential symptoms of red. So we've got an online survey, we do bone density scans, we look at several blood markers of hormones, and we do resting metabolic rate testing. So all of the potential um, outcomes or symptoms of REDS, we try to screen athletes for those um, symptoms. And hopefully towards the end of the study, we'll be able to have a better idea of what kinds of symptoms should we be looking for when we screen athletes for REDS to be able to 
to kind of filter through the athletes with potential risk factors early on to then not let the longevity ability develop into a full-blown REDS case. I'm interested to know a little bit more about this since you're interfacing with such a broad array of people that are in the athletic space. I mean, you mentioned athletes, coaches, researchers, parents, that you guys are trying to try trying to educate and trying to trying to really get in front of the problem before it actually starts to manifest itself into something that's a big issue because as you mentioned the consequences can actually last years and can and can and in some cases can be irreversible so it's definitely a problem worth getting in front of versus trying to like course correct all the time but i'm curious to know when you when you as you are getting in front of these all these different groups of people that interface with athletes in different ways. What are some of like the main themes that you are seeing when you're trying to educate these people and, and, and how can like the listeners take that away into something like tangible? Like what are like the main pieces of education that you're trying to impart on those groups? Uh, well, the education is um, and the increasing of awareness is, is something we we are only starting to work on now. So I didn't have experience from working with this working group from like what it actually looks like. But but some of the things that definitely are um, not really an issue, but just a theme that really arises often is uh, several misconceptions among athletes and coaches and even physicians. So some of the athletes and even physicians might still and coaches might still think that a female athlete who misses their period, that that's a normal sign of heavy training. And we know that's not true, but that's something they might even think if I miss my period, that's awesome. Now I know that I train hard enough and I can just keep going, um, which is not true, but uh, most of the people still seem to think that way um another misconception that's quite common is if i don't have an eating disorder then i don't i can't have longevity and that's also not true so you don't have to have eating disorder or disordered eating behavior to develop rats some of the rats cases might be um elite male heavyweight rollers or uh, soccer players who just expand so much that even though it, they really eat a lot. They just can't keep up um, with the expenditures. And this is the issue in ultra marathon running, right? That Definitely. I always come back to with registered dietitians and people in the space is it's such an energetically intensive sport that it's hard, it's hard to keep up with the caloric demands kind of from two different angles, right? One is the sheer number of the just the sheer number of calories that you have to consume mm. when you're when you're when you're training heavily, but also problem but but also and and I would say even more problematic than that for athletes to figure out and coaches like myself to figure out is kind of the daily discrepancy of caloric expenditure that athletes go through. Not that it's a bank balance that you have to you know pay back every hour or something like that. But when you have like a 10,000 kilojoule day followed by a 2,500 uh, or 20, uh, 2,500 kilojoule day, that that five-fold or four-fold discrepancy in caloric expenditure when you're kind of cycling in and cycling out of that is actually a, kind of a problematic thing for a lot of athletes to, to, 
to kind of to to get a grip on and a lot of the times it ends up slowly manifesting itself in this low energy availability it's not one day but it's several days and several weeks that all of a sudden kind of like dog pile upon an athlete and before they know it they're in a they're in a they're in a real pickle and it takes a long time to recover from that that's definitely that's a good point and i think like we still don't know enough of how much the kind of the small like the short-term launch availability yeah. will affect but we do think that if you across a week or two weeks average with optimal or okay levels of energy availability they'll mitigate the effects of one or two days of dip when you have really low energy availability. I guess the issue is with athletes, like you just mentioned, um, if you have a really big training day, you can't keep up with the levels of uh, energy needs. And then the next day, if you're not hungry or you try to just match the, the rest day or low activity lay day um, energy requirements, then you will de- develop them. Uh, long-term launch availability. Yeah. And that's the counsel that we've been trying to relay to athletes is that you have to think about things on like a, and I don't know the answer to this either. Maybe you, you kind of, uh, you kind of illuminated the, the, this, this, we don't really know, right. What the short-term mm. effects actually are from a pragmatic uh, perspective. I've always kind of used like a three or four day rolling average. Like if we look at that and we try to balance it on a three or four day rolling average, then it, then everything tends to work out, but that's just me kind of guessing and all full admission. Like, I don't think that that's the, that's the perfect answer, nor has science really uncovered it. I think like, I'll definitely go with something like that. Uh, we had a field study with athletes, which, uh, always when you try to estimate or calculate energy availability, yeah. it's, yeah. it's really tricky, but what we did was with um, elite cyclists over eight days where they had four days of racing, we um, recorded all the food intake and then got really accurate estimates of energy expenditure from power meters. And those cyclists on the four racing days, their, their energy availability was almost zero or five, like super low. But then on resting days or training days in between, energy availability was maybe 60 or 55. So the average over the whole eight-day period, around 36 calories per kilo of fat mass, which is above the threshold, and the threshold has been established for females. So for males, the threshold might actually be lower. But what we found was over that eight-day field study period, the hormones and everything, like the level stayed fine. So we think that if you average over a week or so period, a longer term, um, energy availability that's um, normal or optimal, then those one or two day really low levels should be manageable. Yeah, I know the study that you're referencing, and interestingly enough, uh, we we use that and then some some very similar research in uh, some of the training protocols that we use, particularly when we're designing like camps for athletes. So for normal athletes, right, they can get away for like a three or four day camp, and they can mm-hmm. increase their training volume 
but usually threefold, right? Which is a typical yeah. cycling, you know, cycling stage race type of setup. You race for three or four days in a row. So they're all very, very hard. You can't keep up with energy demands, but then you can kind of make it up on, make it up on the back end. So it's interesting to see all of these things kind of confluence, right? What we see in the field yeah. from a training perspective, but also what gets illuminated from the races when we're looking at it uh, in this cycling stage race, stage racing concept. It's so funny that you just mentioned that because I was going over that with one of my colleagues just the other day. That's so cool. That's that's awesome. Um, I want to talk about another uh, piece of uh, uh, research and, and really some commentary that you guys have put out in the space. And that's this that's this overlap that we've already really alluded to with overtraining syndrome and reds and low energy availability, which always gets put into like this sports science goulash that we try to, that, that we try to, that we try to unwind. And I'm going to leave a link in the show notes to the, to the, uh, to the paper itself. Um, I think it's really, I think it's one of those papers that's really accessible for normal people to understand. So if people want to go check it out and they can absolutely read it. Um, but I want to know what you're like, what your takeaways from this paper? Well, first we can kind of talk about the construction of it, right? And why this pa why this paper is important, and why you decided to like tackle this this enormous uh, this this enormous topic, and kind of basically unwind all of these different pathways that get entangled. Um, yeah, so, so the paper you're referring to is the um, the um, I guess the discussion we had over uh, over training syndrome and rats and if they are um originated in same from the same um longeval ability and if sometimes they might be confused so over, or overtraining syndrome might be confused um as overtraining when it's actually under fueling um so the review we wrote is a narrative review so it's not the if you do a systematic meta-analysis it's it's a much, much more strict protocol you have to follow a narrative review can be a bit, a bit more freely and creatively written, I guess. Um, but the main idea there was um, we still don't know with our training syndrome how to diagnose. It's it's a diagnosis of exclusion. You exclude yeah. clinically every condition possible, even um, poor dietary intakes, and then you come up with um, this must be overtraining if the athlete is tired and poorly performing or performance is decreasing. And uh, although overtraining syndrome is a lot uh, older concept than REDS, currently uh, REDS is also a similar kind of diagnosis of exclusion almost um, that you exclude other uh, clinical conditions and then you come up with um, potential REDS. But what's interesting with both of these, so with overtraining, we usually think that it's the increase in training load or energy expenditure that then the athlete can't really handle and it develops into um, poor adaptation and uh, increased fatigue. And then with REDS, um, it's more often the lack of, or, or it is lack of energy available, available, but it can be as a result of uh, increased training loads or increased exercise energy expenditure or decrease in energy intake or a combination of both, such as an imbalance, which leads to launch availability. Uh, so that was the main, I guess, underlying um, idea or hypothesis um, behind 
um, the review and how we kind of started working towards it was we went through all the studies that we could find. Uh, you can't really find actual overtraining interventions. It's ethically not right. okay to drive people into that state, but you can find studies of um, intensive training loads, yeah. which then lead to some sort of um, functional overreaching, so which is less severe than overtraining syndrome. So we uh, went through all the literature and all the studies we could find that fit the uh, training overload topic. Uh, mostly this is endurance-based research for endurance training. And then with all the studies, uh, or we only just studied it also reported energy um, or dietary intakes to calculate energy intake and possibly energy availability. I think we had stu- two studies who did the energy availability calculations in the paper, but with the rest we tried to estimate um, energy availability um, that's really own. hard <laughs> i just want to point that out like you're like you're just going through this like oh we just tried to estimate it's like that's really freaking hard to do like i appreciate you guys going to the those lengths to try to figure that out it's it's definitely it was it was a ton of work but it was really cool as well to to go through and then especially when you start going through and then you actually start finding the the trends there being oh actually most of these intervention groups that's this paper sh- says that it's, it's overreaching or poor training adaptation because the overload, they also seem to have poor energy availability or poor carbohydrate mm-hmm. availability or both. Uh, so it was really cool. And that was, that was something we had to do to, to give some basis for the hypothesis we had um, originally. And when going through the studies, we could show a link there. Um, it was a ton of work, but it was really cool, cool to, to find what we anticipated we might find um, going through the papers. Um, so I guess eventually we found 21 papers uh, that had some sort of a training overload intervention or observation, and that also recorded, reported um, energy, energy intakes for us to be able to uh, calculate or estimate energy availability uh, differences between groups or from pre to post. And of the 21 papers, we found 18 papers that show poor energy availability or poor carbohydrate availability in the either the intervention group or then from pre to post. Um, so at the same time as they showed some sort of overtraining or overreaching, there was a dietary component present, which then gave us some further support for the hypothesis that maybe some of the, at least some of the overtraining or overreaching cases might actually be rats or a result of low energy availability. And maybe we focused on the fueling part of the equation during the heavy overload. Some of the cases might actually um, be fine. They wouldn't be showing the symptoms that they did in those studies. Well, and here's, I think here's the crux of, uh, of it. And this, the, the, the analysis that you did really, uh, illuminates this very well is that we use this term overtraining syndrome in an incorrect fashion, because it's not actually training that is over in almost all cases. Certainly you can have too much training, but that's very, very, very rare. Normally what results in 
this bag of symptoms that you try to that 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 you try to identify with an athlete is that they're either as you started out by saying they're either under recovering or under fueling which is the root cause of things if it were truly over training you can simply remove the training and they would get better but we don't actually see that in almost all cases they actually need Definitely. to increase their energy intake in order to course correct the symptoms, which is exactly what you were describing. Definitely. Um, that's that's totally true. I think in Finnish, we had a term for overtraining. It's something like being over or like beyond good shape, which is totally inaccurate. But yeah, yeah so I, I definitely agree with that. Uh, the terminology can be misleading. Yeah, I, I I'll, I'll go back to I'm going to link this up in the show notes too. Like one of my first, one of my very first podcasts with uh, my coaching colleague Corinne Malcolm, we tried to unpack this vocabulary, and I, I think it's it's when when the everyday athlete comes across that terminology in their mind, what they're thinking is, okay, I have to avoid training too much, but that's mm. normally not the case. They have to avoid underfueling or avoid low energy availability kind of first and foremost, because that's the first step in the whole process. I, I want to get to this. I want to get to kind of another topic that, um, that you guys were trying to unwind here. And that's this confluence of low energy availability or low carbohydrate availability. And this is a, you know, as, as you're, as you're very well aware of working, uh, with Luis's group, especially around the time that you were working, uh, you were working with them. Um, low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets come up in the sports science space all of the time. I think this is like my fourth round, you know, now that I've been coaching for a long time now, that low carbohydrate diets seem to like rise in popularity and th those waves will kind of continue in the future. And so it becomes a popular topic because a lot of athletes want to undertake that type of, you know, that type of dietary pattern for, for whatever, for whatever reason. But I, I'd like I'd like for you to 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 try to describe a little bit more about what you're thinking or what some of the research actually says about which becomes more problematic. Is it actually the total energy availability, or is it specifically the carbohydrate availability that can cause this cascade of issues? It's a really good question. I think my short answer is we don't know, but to hypothesizing some of the findings um, that we or some of the evidence we do have is carbohydrate definitely has, has a role that might be energy independent, especially with some pathways. We know with bone or bone markers, when you look at them um, in relation to different dietary or exercise interventions, sometimes the lack of carbohydrate is a specific cause of impairment in those markers, we also know that some of the hormones, uh, LH, so luteinizing hormone, uh, T3, which is a thyroid hormone, and then leptin, so those reproductive and metabolic hormones might be especially susceptible to lack of carbohydrate fuel. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the energy availability is irrelevant. It just means that carbohydrate is the the additional factor there that might um, influence those um, adaptations, I guess, um, to different dietary conditions. So I definitely, I wouldn't say that a high carbohydrate, very low energy availability diet would cause no issues, but we know that carbohydrate 
is is important um, not just for the obviously for training and racing quality uh, as a as a fuel for the activity but also the the hormones and the, the health um, components um, in there. Yeah, and the interesting part of that is it seems it seems to be as you mentioned with some of with some of these markers and some of the research that you did is is very particular to to bone health that it seems to be low carbohydrate availability seems to be problematic to that independent of the total energy availability meaning you have enough total energy to cover your energy expenditure but if there's a low carbohydrate uh, if, if there's, if there's a low carbohydrate condition, it still tends to be problematic. Yeah. And it's definitely like the, the whole, um, is it the energy availability or is it the carbohydrate or a combination of both? Can you, um, kind of save some of the consequences of low energy availability if you focus on higher carbohydrate? That's definitely one of the key research areas for the future that we need to explore more. But we know from studies of, as I mentioned, analogs, she showed that um, some of the impairments to hormones might be due to carbohydrate, lack of carbohydrate, as opposed to just lack of uh, energy availability. The most more recent studies in bone show the same trend. Um, and it's, Kind of the uh, as you mentioned, the ketogenic diets have well, they come and go. But for athletes to understand that carbohydrates have a role beyond the exercise performance um, would be really, really useful in 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 the current world where carbohydrates seem to be demonized a lot more often than fat or proteins. Well, and that we get caught up in the endurance space and particularly in the ultra marathon space with pigeonholing carbohydrates to gels and, you know, chewables and sports nutrition products. Right. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they serve a role outside of simply providing you energy while you're locomoting or cycling or running or whatever it is, I think that's what the research is actually starting, starting to uncover. That's more important is that they serve these, 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 biochemical roles in the, uh, along a lot of different pathways that are, uh, outside of quote unquote energy production, right. Which is what we typically mm. think about when we think about consuming carbohydrates for. No, I definitely agree with that. You, so you just, you just mentioned this, uh, a second ago in terms of what the future holds. So you have this, you have this complicated, you know, not only vocabulary, but all of these pathways dealing with energy deficiency, low energy availability, low carbohydrate availability. Where personally do you want to see the research go from here? Like what questions you want to kind of continually uncover that you think will be beneficial for athletes? Um, so many different directions, honestly, I feel like there's 10 or 20 years worth of research to, to be done. Um, one of them, which is um, going back to the to the reds um, component, is getting a better idea of uh, how to screen athletes for for reds to 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 get a hold of the athletes early on and to prevent the long term negative consequences. And to do that, we need to know what symptom, symptoms to look for. That's something we hopefully will know in a couple of years time when our study, but also other, other research around the world um, has been finished. 
but that's definitely one of the one of the big big uh, goals uh, for the next couple of years. But then when we go back to the launch availability or low carbohydrate availability, um, we have these really um, well done studies by analogs, which are four to five days of duration, but we still lack of the um, knowledge of the time course of changes in several markers um, as a result of launch availability. So we know what happens in four to five days, but we know less about what happens in the medium term, so weeks to months and um, in the long term. So that would definitely be beneficial. So that we can, as you know, athletes and especially endurance athletes do need to modify or periodize body composition. So knowing a safe way to do this uh, without causing long-term impairments uh, would be beneficial. Another theme in terms of launch availability that we still don't know is the dose of launch availability uh, that's been discussed in the last couple of years a bit. So by dose, we refer to the combination of duration of exposure to launch availability, the frequency. So if it's, as we talked about, um, every day, every, sing- every other day, uh, two days a week, uh, the magnitude. So the, is it uh, 30 calories per kilo of fat-free mass per day, or is it 15? And then that in combination with the duration and possible breaks from the launch availability and finding the, I guess, the best way to do this without causing the, the impairments to, to health would be really beneficial. And yes, we also touched the, the, the theme of macronutrients and especially the role of carbohydrate availability in relation to uh, launch availability okay. to maybe prevent those outcomes. I'm, sh- I'm sure you realize this as you're thinking about it and discussing it, but you're picking all the really complicated problems, like not Definitely. the not, not the simple ones. You're picking the preventative problem, which is like to get in front of these things is that's always it's the most impactful, right? Because then you don't have mm. to you don't have to unwind any you know any ill effects, but it's also the most difficult problem to solve because it's got a predictive nature to it, right? You're trying to prevent something and you've got to figure out how you can kind of for, forecast physiology in, in a certain in a certain way. You're also picking the long-term uh, problem, the, the, the long-term interventions, the long-term trials to actually, to actually study, which is really problematic because, you know, as you increase the duration that you're studying somebody, you run into issues of, you know, non-compliance and it just gets really complicated there. So I I appreciate the audacity of trying to figure out all those things because one, it's important because we've seen a lot of athletes careers kind of get unwound, uh, unnecessarily by, uh, by some of these issues, but more importantly, it impacts health for, Mm. for not only elite athletes, but everyday athletes. Yeah, I definitely agree. And with the health component, sometimes when you talk to athletes, and especially younger athletes, and and this maybe goes to the education and prevention. But in the early days or previously, um, if you were a female athlete and you missed your period, you might um, talk to the physician or someone, and then uh, be told that you need to get your period back because otherwise you will get osteoporosis when you're you know, 60 years old. And that's something the young female athlete doesn't really care about. So definitely also talking about health you need to know how to what language to use and um, 
what kinds of things to refer to to convince the athlete and the coach that it's important right now and not just you know 50 years down down the track yeah it's super important because the people surrounding those athletes and i've seen that in a high performance context i can't tell you how many times it's important to put that 20-year lens on and not just the proverbial four-year Olympic cycle or two-year Olympic cycle or whatever, two-year world championship Olympic cycle. Like we tend to, like we tend to look, look through things. You really have to look out for the next 20, 30, 40 years of a person first, because they're not incongruent in, in almost all cases. And Mm -hmm. then you can focus on the performance second, health first, performance second, all like always. And all, all too often that gets kind of like lost in the shuffle when we talk about you know, how to optimize our diets and optimize our performance and things like that. We take a lot of, uh, we tend to take some, some shortcuts that might have long-term ill effects. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I like the, and I totally agree with the health first and performance second. I think that's the motto of the Norwegian uh, sports um, Institute or Olympiad Open. But, but I also think it's important to highlight to the athletes and coaches that it's not health and performance kind of separate but they are connected so they would understand that health does precede performance and then maybe that way and that's part of the education and prevention component to to increasing the awareness that they go hand in hand might you know motivate the athletes to focus on both yeah 100 percent. we're in 100 percent alignment there well, I, I'm very appreciative of your work. I can't wait to see uh, what comes out of the group there. For the listeners out there that want to learn a little bit more about what you and the group up there in Canada is doing, where can you direct them to? And I'll link all this stuff up in the show notes as well. Um, I think at this point, uh, Twitter is always a good place to to follow Um there's so many people involved in the study. It's not just me and Trent. Um, but yeah, I might send links to you, to those um, key websites or, or people to follow. And then uh, that might be a good place to start. Excellent. I'll have all of those in the show notes. And for the people listening, go check out the paper. It's a super important one. And uh, follow this group out of Canada. You guys are doing great work out there. I, I appreciate you coming out on the podcast. And uh, I hope to bring you back. Once you can, once, once you figure out all the complexities of these future studies that you want to tackle, I hope uh, we can bring you back on the podcast. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure. All right, folks, there you have it. There you go. Much thanks to Ida for coming on the podcast today. Really appreciate the effort that her and the entire team up in Canada has been, has been putting forth for this effort to educate the public on these issues with reds and inform athletes and coaches alike makes my job a whole heck of a lot easier when i have smart people like ida working on these types of issues also appreciate the heck out of all of the listeners out there as i have reiterated from the onset of this podcast this podcast has no sponsors no endorsements i do it simply as a community service and you can help out by sharing this podcast giving it a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And really, if you like it, just send me a direct message via social media and tell me what topics you would like to see coming up in the future. That is it for today, folks. And as always, we will see you out on the trails.